What is up, everybody? It's April Justine here, and you are listening to Strictly Shorties. It is a podcast for short tail python owners all about bloods and short tails. So today we are going to be talking about breeding specifically, and previous episodes we have talked about the the bloods in captive U.S. history. We've talked about husbandry and we've talked about genetics. So if that's something that you have missed or want more information on, you can go and hit up our previous podcast for that. But like I said, today we are going to specifically be talking about breeding them. So I am super stoked. I have one of my good friends, Matt Minatola, here, and he is probably, I would say, the top of the game when it comes to short tails and is widely known for the ocelot gene, stripes, extreme marbles, and much, much more. Uh, But I am super excited to have him here to talk about breeding because obviously he can do that pretty well. Hello, Matt. How are you? Hey, what's going on, April? How you doing? I am doing pretty well. I feel like I'm way too peppy for this today. I don't. <laughs> I had some coffee and man, I'm like sky high. <laughs> that makes one of us. I'm kind of tired, so that that'll work out good. I'll pull us along. There we go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right. So, Matt, just give us a little bit uh, of what you work with mostly, um, where you're at in the season, what you have going on. Just a little update on what's going on with you. Uh, my main focus is Borneo short-tail pythons, followed by <laughs> blood pythons, and I have, in the last couple of years, uh, got back a few Sumatran short-tail pythons, the the uh, southern the southern ones, and I actually do. I'm getting uh, another pair of orange heads. I have one from Mick, and I'm getting one from uh, from Matt as well. So I'm getting them back, but mostly Borneos and blood pythons. Along with the other pythons and boas, but we won't touch on them because the show's not really about them. Um, but you do have with some Borneos. Cool stuff <laughs> I work on oslets, marbles, super stripes. I have some ultras, some latte stuff, uh, sideswipe stuff. I have a couple odds and ends, different stripe lines. So just kind of almost everything Borneo and bloods. I have. I think my main focus for bloods would be stripe reds. They're my favorite. I'm trying to kind of narrow it down to that. Um, more, more often than not these days, I still have golden eyes, ivories, batiks, uh, a couple other things, albinos. I don't have any teen eggs. I'm going to have to get, get, uh, get to you for some teen eggs eventually. So I got to get some teen eggs again. I mean, that's all I have. So <laughs> you are welcome to it. Yeah. Someone was asking me recently about my collection. I was like, yeah, if, if nothing is visually albino, just know that they're het negative. They're like, is that all you have? I'm like, yes, that is all I have. It's good to have a focus. I mean, really, the, the quality of tea positives that I would want, I would rather put that money into the tea negative projects instead. So that's, that's yeah. really how my collection got as focused as it is. Just it was economic. <laughs> I go back and forth. T. I have T positive. I go back and forth though with which ones I like. I'll see T negative. I'm like, they, they're so much better. And then I'll see T positive. And I'm like, nah, they're so much better. They're both awesome in my opinion. So I can see where you're coming from, but I, I like both. And uh, I've just, I've had no luck with T negative. So I got to get some back again and try them out. Well, I hopefully will have a great season and can help you out a little bit. We'll see. The season is still new. (laughs) Speaking of the breeding season, let's hop right into this. Um, First, I kind of want to make like a general disclosure to everyone listening that just because we're talking about breeding does not mean that you have to breed. If you have a blood python or a short tail and it is your favorite pet, it does not mean that you need to get a boy to go with it or a girl to go with it to breed. Um, I think kind of as all, oh, Matt, you can kind of 
attest to this if you'd like or disagree with me and that's fine. Um, but no, I really no. think with breeding, it's to improve the species and to refine the animal. And if the, if your pairing isn't going to do that, then maybe you should think twice about maybe putting those animals together. I totally agree with you. Um, they're fun to keep as pets. And I understand people's excitement for breeding. And when you are excited to breed and you just have two animals and it's a male or female and you can breed them, there's a lot of temptation there. So it's it would be awesome if you could be patient and try to make something that will further it and make make things better rather than just put two snakes together then you're going to have a whole bunch of baby snakes if you're successful and it can be it could be good or it could be a nightmare but um yeah, yeah it, could, <laughs> it could be really tough so just like april said I, I i agree um try to plan your breedings out if it's a if it's a pet thing and then you want to turn it into breeding do your do your research and maybe start with a female first if you think you want to breed because that'll be your easier way to breeding if, if you think you might go that route Yep. Uh, females do take a little bit longer to maturity. So if you pick your female first, you have some time to, to think about it and, and plan that out more. Um, that is a great leeway into planning. Uh, Matt, when you are planning your pairings, what exactly are you looking for? Uh, or generally, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I don't. So it's, it's a complicated. I'm, I'm not someone I, I do know people that just kind of look through their room. Uh, a week before and decide I'm going to put this one with this one, this one with this one. And that, that does happen for me once in a while. I'll just suddenly see something that I might not have seen and change it up. But it's usually like the season before I'm already picking what I want to pair to what. And it's usually depending if it's, if it's like an oslip breeding and I want to improve on something oslip wise, it, it just depends on the looks of the animal. If it's, Obviously, starting to mix stuff up like a striped oslet, a striped marble. I'm just looking for what I think would look good together. What I see, the little things like stripes in the neck, colors, uh, see if they go together well. Because usually when you breed them, uh, for most things, you kind of get a spitting image of mom and dad for the most part, especially with Borneos. And then you get like some mixtures. You get some that are better. So it's it's fun. It, to me, it's not hard. Maybe to other people – it could be a real like pain for people, but I have a lot of fun doing it. So uh, it's, I, I don't know how to put it into words, like what exactly it is, but I do take my time. I look at the pairings. I look at them in person a lot. I take a picture of all my adults that season, keep them in my phone, keep staring at them. And that's how I kind of just sit there at work when I'm at home and just keep looking at them and pairing them and putting them next to each other and seeing what could go best with each other. And I also have backups paired, uh, picked for them as well for like, so if a male is just not locking up with a female going with one, I kind of always have a backup, a back burner because I don't breed everything. I have a lot more males. Uh, I actually have more males than females and I don't breed everything in one season. That would just <laughs> for, for Borneos or bloods. If I bred everything, that would be a nightmare. If it came true, it'd be lots of that. <laughs> yeah, if, if if <laughs> yeah, oh, it would be so many. <laughs> Yeah, it oh, would goodness. be. I, I, I've bred to the point where I've had over a hundred, not over 150, but between 150 and 100. And when I hit that, it was, oh, it was a lot of work. It was a, uh, it was a ton of work, and it was, it, it was good in the end. But uh, I don't know if I would do it again, where I'm doing 140 of them or something like that. That's a lot. I think I would potentially lose uh, the excitement of going into the snake room if I had to take care of that many babies that yeah. pee every other day most of the time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's another thing. Don't breed everything all at once. No. You know, think that 
bloods potentially you might have i had a clutch of four eggs and that really sucks but i also have a clutch of 22 eggs so go for the max and plan that way too um, yeah and i think that's a great idea with uh taking pictures of all of the animals and kind of putting them next to each other i didn't think about that i think that's really great yeah i just and i kind of just stare and you, and you know your animals usually pretty good so you, if you you know you just kind of know what they're what they look like and if you raise them how they were when they were babies and what, what was like, uh, you know, just kind of every little thing about your animal. And yeah, I literally, I, I use my, I got a, I got an iPhone. I use my, my notes. You can put pictures in notes and I'll take pictures of all my males and it'll say like 20, 22 breeding males. And then I'll take all pictures of females and keep them separate. And then I start matching them up. I make a whole nother folder and I match them all up and there's a lot of moving around and thinking about stuff. And, uh, you know, once in a while you'll go in your room and you'll just see, you thought the female was ready or the male was even ready. And you're like, I just don't feel like they're up to it this year. You know? So you cross that breeding out, you, you go on to the next one. So it's, it's a lot and you just can't be locked on it. If you see something go wrong, you don't think they're fed up enough. You just see, you think they're too heavy or something like that. Just, I mean, if you have enough animals, obviously I know I'm talking as if everybody has, you know, 10 pairs they can do, but it's better to wait than to just push one, push one out. You know what I mean? Because you might have a real yeah. bad situation if, if you just force it. I know it's hard once you're locked in to just turn it down, but it's, it'll be worth it in the end if you, if you wait a season or two. And I think too, with that, I had, um, actually it was a marble pair that I wanted to go and either one of them is missexed or they, they just were not happy with each other. I still have to look further into this, but I didn't just throw that animal with a different animal. Like my plan is for the marbles and I wasn't going to mix anything weird in that. Cause that was my plan. And I just missed out on that season. I'll have to, you know, revisit it and figure it out next time and see what the heck is going on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that's a pain too, especially that situation where you're not even sure. And I I've been there at one of my earlier breedings. Uh, I knew it was a female, it was a proven female um, by me. And, uh, it was a proven male. That's the funny part. And they bred together and it was, their second season together. And when I put them in, they were, it was, I, I didn't know any better. I would have thought they were two males. They were freaking out. The female was like, she was just thrashing and the male was trapped in the corner. So I re I took them out immediately. I reintroduced them. It wasn't as crazy, but it was still pretty crazy. But I walked away for an hour. They still seemed, they were close to each other, but it still seemed bad. And uh, I don't know if it was retained sperm, maybe in that little moment. Um, but I didn't pair her up with anything else and I got eggs that year. So it was, it was pretty crazy, but it was a legit proven pair by me and it was her second season and she just was not having it. She was the one freaking out. So yeah, that's kind of what was going strange. on with my pairing. So I'll try it again. Actually right now the male has somewhat of congestion, a little bit of an RI. So I'm not going to be doing that one, but yeah, yeah. I need to figure out something with the female, maybe get an ultrasound or I don't know something. Cause pop in a, Adult females yeah, kind of slightly tough. hard. That's <laughs> I'm doing the babies. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so we talked about picking out your pairings, um, and you kind of mentioned and alluded to the size and the age, and if a, a male or female isn't ready. So, how big would your female or male have to be? And I'm kind of thinking too, in um, kind of ball python realm ish because people you know in ball python say when they get this pound or grams not even pounds when they get to this weight yeah. that they're good to go and and how does that relate with blood pythons is it the same or different uh you know it's it's weird i i don't ever weigh 
my my any of my snakes for that. I have a scale. I don't ever weigh them. Um, for me, uh, it used to be. Uh, I'll go. I'll go off of how I used to go about it because now I'm in. I'm in no rush. I mean, I think I breed males at like three, th- four years old, maybe even later. Females, the same thing. Like I'm just. I'm never in a rush anymore. I'm. I'm I have so I have so many things I can go to, so I don't need to really ever rush something, even if I'm really excited about it. But what I used to do, and, and I'm not saying I used to rush, I used to wait for males to be two and a half years old. Um, I would say they were in the realm of seven, eight pounds at the latest for a male. Mm-hmm. And then females, I would wait three, uh, three and a half, maybe four. And they would be at least 12 pounds, definitely bigger. And um it's hard to go by age because it all depends on your diet. I mean, my, my two and a half year old snake, I would imagine these days is a lot smaller than most people's two and a half year old snake because <laughs> of the way I feed stuff. I, I'm like I said, I'm not in a rush, but I think a general rule of thumb would be two and a half for a male, three and a half for a female. And you know, it's, it's gotta be, I would say your females comfortably taking large rats if that's a good base. And then your male is, could take a large rat, but is more comfortably taking medium rats, I'd say. Yeah, I think the smallest if, female I've had go for me was 12 pounds. And I think my sweet spot is around 15, 16 pounds if you're weighing okay. them. But I'm like Matt, too, and I don't really weigh them. I go off of age and and their size if they have enough weight on them. And I think they can take the eggs all the way through. So. Yeah, I don't th- I don't know anybody that I've ever talked to that's really been like a f- focused on blood and short tails that really has ever weighed their snakes. I mean – Sure, they weighed them, but not. They just kind of. Uh, I think most of us go off age. You know what I mean? It's it's mm-hmm. age, and it, obviously it's a uh, size. Because, like I said, these days my three year old females. I feel like the way I feed my snakes, my three year old females could go, but they probably shouldn't because yep. they're just not there yet. So. Yep, I agree um, with that. I, I have some three year olds yeah. now where I'm like, you probably could have gone this past season, but I'm glad that I'm holding off on you. And they've been, I you know, do- doing large rats for a while. Yeah, it's like I said. I'm speaking as someone who's been doing this for a long time, so it's easy for me to wait, but I know there's other people out there that are excited. But um, by accident, my original Extreme Marble, which was so weird because I've been lucky enough to rarely uh, miss sex stuff. If people don't know, it's pretty tough to sex uh, bloods and short tails. They can be confusing. And uh, from customers, I think I've only gotten back one or two replies saying I might have missexed something. And for my own stuff, because I hold back a lot, most people know I hold back a lot, I think I've only missexed stuff twice. And once was the the original Extreme Marble, and I thought it was a male, and I put it to a female. And he, he was actually pretty small. I was actually kind of excited to breed this one, but he was two and a half. Um, and nothing was going on. So I put this one marble in there that I didn't know the sex. I, I remember I kept it back. Um it was something I never sold. I never, I never sexed it. Cause it was, it was like a weird feeder, but I was like, let me just see what happens. Cause I, I didn't know what was going on. And that, that one turned out to be a male and my extreme marble turned out to be a female. So I, I didn't think that though. I thought the other one acted like a female. That's why I did it. It wasn't swirling. It was bigger. And, um, sure enough, the, uh, extreme marble <laughs> wound up ovulating and she was tiny. I mean, like, by ball python, like ball python, 1100 grams, maybe 1200 grams. And she laid 11 good eggs. And those, I think 11 good eggs, one slug, and they all hatched and they were fine. They were normal size. And I couldn't believe it, but it wasn't something I would do again. Cause I was very nervous that maybe something was going to happen, but now she's 
downstairs and she's bred again and again and she's huge she's one of my bigger bigger animals so it's kind of crazy how that happened so that kind of there i have heard a myth before that if you breed them too small that it stunts their growth you can attest with this particular animal that that didn't happen no that's definitely not the case because she was very small and she's one like i said i don't make my bloods real big anymore my short tails and she's one of my bigger ones without me trying that hard she's very big and it's things because she used to be very nice and now she just does not like to be looked at or handled. So <laughs> I don't know what happened there, but it's, it's all good. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. And then there's something that um, the guys from uh, Morelia Python Radio have talked about that, you know, the female size is very important. If you put in a male that might be too young or, you know, too small, not ready yet, it's it's less of a risk to the male than it would be to the female. If you had the female small, I also had where I, I thought that my female was male and I thought the male was female. So my male was huge. Cause I was yeah. you know, huge, bigger, a lot bigger than it's not huge, but big. And then the, what I thought was male was fed as a male. And then I kept pairing them up and I didn't see any locks. I didn't see my quote unquote female with any ovulation or anything. So I kept pairing them up. And one day I checked the pairing and the uh, quote unquote male is on top of eggs. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, this male was so small. It's actually yeah. a female now. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. Yeah. It, it works out funny. I mean, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I can, uh, if I can really give comments on that, but I, I guess, yeah, I guess anytime a, a male would be much bigger than a female, it, it could, or either way, I think, I mean, even when uh, you, know, you see like, Retic breeders, and, and they've been doing it. I have no issue with it. I'm not saying that. But you'll see this, like, tiny, tiny retic in with this gigantic female. It's It looks insane uh, the way people, like, the, the size difference in some retic breedings. I even so see that in ball pythons, too, where you see like, yeah, a tiny uh, little male. <laughs> I mean, sometimes the retics, I, I've seen people go, that retic's breeding, and I'm like, what's a right male? And they're like, yeah. And you look in there, and there's like, uh, it's like the, the, the male's perched on the female's tail. Like, that's how small, I'm not even oh kidding. I've goodness. seen some tiny stuff. So I'm sure it's a risk, and I'm sure there's been accidents and unfortunate things, but uh, it seems like they might have it dialed in, and they got it right. I don't think you'll ever have that much of a problem with short tails. I don't think you could put something too small in at a point where it would look that bad or hopefully have an accident or, or something unfortunate happen. Yeah. I just worry more about if the female's too small, that they're going to get egg bound or something's going to happen yeah. to them I or gotcha. they just don't bounce, bounce back really well. Cause you know, yeah. I mean, I gotcha. yeah, the, I've had a female, I weighed her beforehand and I think she was at the small end and was like 12 pounds. And once she laid eggs, she ended up being seven pounds. So, I mean, you got to think like it takes a lot out of the animal. Yeah, they're like flat tires when they're, they're, they're like, I've had, I've brought other, other species and bloods are, they're so drastic looking once, once a female lays, it's yeah, insane it's really how flat yeah. and just skinny and run down looking they are. Yeah, I was like, what did I do to my animal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's another thing. That's an important thing. If you love your animal, it's a trophy showcase, it's your pet, you have a name for it and you want to keep it safe and you know that, don't breed it. Because yeah. when you breed it, you it definitely enters a risk, whether it's a male or a female. There's you know a ton of risk in it. So if it's your absolute baby, you have it in its perfect cage, its perfect temperament. It's not saying you don't breed, but just don't breed that animal. I'm not saying it always goes bad because it doesn't, but it that's that's a way it can go bad for you. 
It's like a really dramatic statement is that breeding is the most dangerous thing that you could possibly do to one of your animals. Yeah. And it's what they're kind of here to do. I know. But, um, <laughs> so much, can, so much can go wrong and it's it really, really there's a lot that's out of your control. So it's, um, yeah, it's a risk. Yep. All right. So all the bad stuff behind us. <laughs> mm-hmm. When do you start pairing your animals and can you actually pair them like year round? Is that a thing? Um, okay. So what I, I usually pair my animals mid to late October. Uh, this year was weird because I, I, I moved, I pretty much took a year off before I moved. I did breed one, one thing and it, <laughs> I paired one animal and I, and I got eggs. So I really didn't take off a full season. Um, but I moved and I was off to a little bit of a late start in this house. So I actually paired late December but all of my actual females that laid laid the same time they would lay at my old house. So, um, uh, as far as breeding all season long, I've heard people doing it. I've heard people starting as early as September. I've heard people starting as late as January. I'm sure it's been all in between, but, uh, the what I've never tried earlier than October and I've never paired anything later than the end of December. So, I'm sure it just seems like with so many species now, not all, but uh, you can almost pair things all year long. I would say bloods and short tails aren't the most difficult species to breed and they fit with the mold of like, you, you, there's probably people that I would say breed them all year long. Probably so. I, I kind of had the same, uh, same pattern as you where I tried to breed that normally I breed them at Thanksgiving. That's like, that's okay. my time period is Thanksgiving. So I'm like, well, let's try early October this year and see what happens. And one of my females did lay eggs early and I got babies hatching, you know, a couple weeks ago and everyone else has kind of just aligned with what the room normally does and what my collection normally does. So I probably won't, you know, experiment with that again. Cause it just seems like I'm yeah. trying to force something that just, it's not necessary. So yeah, yeah, I got you. That was my experience. Well, what, what I was going to add on is like, so what I said, what I mean by all my females go at the same time. So everything late, everything of mine usually drops late, um, late March to pretty much late April, uh, to late April in that time window. Um, they, sometimes I see some May eggs and stuff like that, but I bred one animal that I didn't produce or it's not mine all the way. It's a, uh, it's an ultra I got from Ryan Rumbly and I thought she just didn't take. And then, you know, sure enough, I, I went into cleaner uh, a couple, I think a week or two ago and she, she ovulated. So she's a little bit on the late side and I usually never see late stuff, but like I said, it's one that I didn't raise and maybe that's why she just went differently or just took different. I, like I said, I do have some odds and ends that will go a little later, but usually my Borneos especially go, they always drop between, late March and, and late April, but blood, my bloods are kind of, there's no rhyme or reason to them. They, they're kind of all over the place. I get, I get scattered clutches throughout the year. They, they've never like caught a, uh, like a time window with me. But like I said, my Borneos have always been in like a certain time window. Okay. Do you think like the ultra that you got from Ryan, do you think that's because it hasn't been in, how long has it been in your collection? It's been in my collection for a few, uh, probably a few years, but I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's just because of that, but I don't, I don't know. Like I said, it's just weird that, um, usually the stuff that I produce or or I'm working with from a baby almost always goes in the same window. 
Yep. I, I mostly agree with that. But not to say you can't try to do it, you know, some other oh, time yeah. in the year. Because probably will work. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. I said, they're I, not hard to breed. That's for sure. It's, it's just like what with me. Uh, I'm just dialed into certain times of the year. I change my room temperatures or the light cycling. Uh, and, and it's what works for me. I mean, like I said, yeah. once you learn your room and you get your room down and your cages, I mean, why would I change it if I, if I'm kind of like fine tuned to just doing it this way and it's what I expect and, and it just seems to work out that way. Yeah. And then you can kind of plan for stuff too, you know, certain yeah. times of the year, you're going to be real busy in the snake room and you know, it comes yeah. in waves. So you know when that wave's going to come. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a, so it's a you have them. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Um, once the animals lock, is there do you have, I mean, your room, like you said, is pretty dialed in. So you, do you see from when they lock to when they ovulate? Like, is that a certain amount of time for you? If there is, I'm not as fine tuned anymore uh, at, at noticing. I just know I generally introduce my males into my females cages or tubs. I should say I use racks. Uh, I do between 24 to 48 hours every once in a while, 36, if they're locking or close I will take the mail back out, give him a few days off to a week. Uh, just keep introducing them. They, they probably get introduced anywhere between four to seven times. And if I catch anything in between there, like I catch an ovulation, I obviously, if it's an obvious ovulation, I pull the mail and I don't feel a need to continue. But um, yeah, they just go through that time frame. I do give one long break in the middle. Uh, of the breedings usually after like three or four times I give like 10 or 15 days off and just continue that way but yeah I don't really notice I usually get a lot of locks like I said I usually will peek in I'll see a lock or two and um sometimes they just will just stay that way the whole time and then um if I do notice they're on opposite sides of the cage and they've locked for a while I I kind of lay off of it some but um if it's a pairing I really want I'll, I'll make sure they keep going because I don't want to stress them out. Usually if they're if they're locking and then they're in the corners, it, it usually should be a done deal or I guess it's not going to happen. But, I mean, you could roll the dice. It's just kind of risky because you could end up with two respiratory infections or just stressed out animals. Yep, that is definitely true. Um, and I basically follow the same thing. If they're on opposite sides of the cage, either it's not going to happen or they need a long break and I might introduce them once or twice again after that. But if they're still not showing any interest, I just let it be and, and it's fine. And honestly, most of the time they do sneak attacks and they did lock and I just didn't know it yeah. and I didn't see it. <laughs> so Yeah, that's what I mean. It is weird. You'll see some never even near each other and it's it, the deal got done. So somewhere yeah. along the line, I mean, I'm not down there at four in the morning <laughs> peeking at my thing. So maybe that's. Maybe that's the time they need their alone time and then four in the morning or while I'm at work, that's when that's when it happens. So, And then a lot of people ask, you know, what does an ovulation look like and, and or how do you know if there was an ovulation? And if you see one from a short tail, there's no way you don't know. It looks like they swallowed a football. And like I'm not exaggerating when I say that. <laughs> and when you hold them, like if I move them to clean, they are hard as a rock on that last, you know, third of their body. Um, is there certain things besides that, that you identify as, yes, that is definitely an ovulation. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, I've used this term to like Eric and Owen, and I think Keith and none of them heard it. And they, they all agreed with me, even for other animals, uh, just by feel, if you can't see, or you don't notice or, or when they're really building, I call it, they get, uh, it's like a box belly feel like their, their belly will 
kind of it'll go round and then the bottom will just feel like it's squared off like it's boxed <laughs> it's it's a weird feel I, I i don't know if you know what i'm talking about but well, they, they kind of all agree I'm check like, oh, yeah, I, I know for sure. talking about. <laughs> yeah and it is pretty obvious they, they get pretty swollen pretty heavy they kind of turn their their midsection that third that third uh, half of their body midsection almost to the side too if you, if you notice they they kind of mm-hmm. they kind of tilt it but um I've seen some ovulations that went the full way and I got good eggs that weren't as obvious. So, and I, I mean, when you're first starting, you, there's a lot of second guessing, so you might be worried, but I mean, there is a point where if you catch them at the right time, there's no second guessing. You're like, yeah, that's, yep. that's a hundred percent there. That's something new They're, They must've ovulated because it's, it's completely solid. It's really, really thick and it, it's hard to miss. And like I said, I, I always get, I always feel for that box belly feel. Yeah, I'll check for that because I, I just know like it's hard as a rock is how I tell you know and it yeah it's I don't even really mess with the the top of their body feeling it. it's that it's the scales on the bottom and it like yeah. I said it kind of just has that when you feel them normally it's even if they're on a full belly it's that very rounded feeling and when they ovulate they get like that bottom of their belly gets squared it's like flat <laughs> so it's 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 squared but then rounds if if, if makes if that makes any sense of, of how I'm explaining it I don't know. I'll definitely pay attention to it next time, and I'll confirm with you that it, in fact, is squarer than <laughs> <Okay>. round. <laughs> Good. Good. Yeah, I've had, I've had people confirm that, and, and I, I thought that was like going to be like, oh, yeah, everybody knows that box belly term, but people are like, oh, that's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. So yeah, I like I know by, by feel, but I don't think I correlated it to the boxy feeling. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but you definitely I, – I do agree that you definitely can feel the difference. Even if you can't really see it, there's definitely a feel to it. Um, so the animal ovulates and, uh, then they go into shed. A lot of people say, you know, 30 day post ovulation, do your animals follow that? Or do they, you know, say F you and do what they want? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's, it's pretty much, that's exactly what I do. I, I, when they shed, I will put a sticker on their cage. I'll put, you know, PLS prelay shed. And and then I will put a date on there. Uh, I'll put the date of the prelay shed. So, you know, if it's, uh, you know, uh, March 1st, I figure, you know, by March 30th, I'm going to see eggs. So it's usually for me, it's usually 28 to 35 days. It's not automatic, but I haven't had too many weird moments. Some people say like, it's been 60 days or 50 days. I haven't really had anything like that with short tails. I think maybe the longest it scared me was like 38 days or something like that. And I think the earliest I had was 28 days. And it could have been because maybe I thought they shed that day and maybe they shut a day before I didn't get to check it. <laughs> I True. don't know. Yeah. Sorry. I'm a mine all go late, honestly. So mine do not follow the 30 days and most oh, of the really? time. Yeah. Most of the time they're about a week after. So okay. I wait for the 30 days and that's when I start checking them more often, you know, well daily for sure. And twice a day just to see what's going on, see if their scales, you know, look like they're more spread out. If they're in a position like they're going to lay, um, I'll look for that, but they're always, they're always late. Even the baby's hatching. They are late for me, basically all the gotcha. time. <laughs> but that's that's my collection, and that's the pattern that my collection has. And I I already know not to stress out. So I've done that, you know, five years ago with my first clutch, and you know I cut them open because I was so scared, and yeah, you no, know, they were yeah. fine. <laughs> so well, learn well, that what, one. What do you what do you incubate at? Um, they are incubating this year at eighty seven degrees. So I used to do okay, eighty six, well, that... and I think that was part of the reason too. Well, that yeah, eighty seven. I would say they would 
generally take a little bit longer. That that's where I incubate now. I'm I'm comfortable with 87. I, I've done I've, I've done 86 all the way up to 90. I don't like 89 and 90. I feel like it's rushed. I feel like they come out with the big midsections. Oh, I'm sorry. We're, we're skipping ahead, probably. Am I? Yeah, we are kind right? of skipping ahead, but that's okay. okay. <laughs> should I keep going or should we just wait? Uh, we'll wait. We'll catch back up to that. Okay. Um, okay. I got you. So we're basically at the egg laying part. So they have the ovulation, then they shed, and then 30-ish days they're going to be laying eggs. So we're talking about how we set up now the incubator and even like pulling the eggs. Do you pull the eggs? Do you leave them with the female to incubate? I personally do not because that scares me. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know anybody that's really off the top of my head that did a maternal incubation with blood I can't and think of, Yeah, I can't think of anyone. It stinks to say, I mean, I wouldn't know, but they don't seem like the best moms. They don't coil around everything. And then um, nope. they're kind of loosely coiled. I had some type B hives, but I, I will, I one day will do it. I have uh, did maternal incubation with ball pythons just for fun because I want to do it. One day I'll do it with, with a Borneo or blood that I, you know, one day. Um, but now I pull the eggs. Um, the way I pull the eggs is usually these days, most Bloods and short tails are pretty tired after laying, and I usually catch them, if not hours after, maybe a day after at the latest. Sometimes they'll be they'll get their energy back; they'll be a little testy. But I generally go in with this. Uh, I go in with a with a, I guess it's like a half a bath tail. It's a small bath tail. Just put place it over their head. Um, this way, they're not scared, or if they're aggressive, they're not whipping all over the place. I just try to peel them out, and if I think they're going to wrap the eggs up, I try. To, I always have like a pen in my ear, so I can like mark the eggs this way. If they they're not glued together, and she kicks them all over the place, I can tell which one, way the top is because I've had that issue before of where you go in, they're not really t- they're still can fall off, and the girl, the female's kind of fighting, and then the eggs spill all over the place. So then you're kind of you got a candle to see which way the top is, and you're kind of leaving yourself open to maybe put an egg upside down and you could kill the egg that way. Yeah. So, um, uh, usually it's not that much of an issue. Uh, so I, I, that's how I get the eggs out. I try to calmly do that. I have my egg box ready. I usually try to make up a couple egg boxes. Uh, the week I know things are laying, I make a few extra. So this way, as soon as I pull her out, I can just put the eggs right in the egg box. I try to separate my eggs. I don't like them, uh, like piled, Mm-hmm. just in case one goes bad in the middle it's i've never broken a blood egg i have with ball pythons before it stinks i'm very careful with blood eggs and then if there is a point where i feel like i'm risking it i will keep a couple clumped but i i don't usually do like a giant mound because of the way i use my egg boxes i just like to kind of separate them if i can makes it easy to candle check everything out um <clears throat> i mean you can keep them clumped but like I said, I, I get nervous if one were to go bad in the middle, it could spread to the, to the other eggs and all that other stuff. Have you had that happen previously or seen that with a lot of other keepers where one will go bad and it spreads to others? It's, it's such a weird thing because people will say that it can't harm. There, there's people, I shouldn't say they, people do say that like a bad egg can't harm good eggs, but I don't understand even if it's not touching. I mean, it's an egg that's molding, it's mold in the air. And if it's touching the egg, why wouldn't it be able to run onto the egg? And I, I believe in my younger days with ball pythons, I have had that. I mean, maybe the egg was destined to go bad, but I think they were together or like, you know, glued, but right next to each other. Mm-hmm. And one would rot and I wouldn't peel it off yet. And then the other one would start getting mold and rotten and rotten on there. And then I would lose that egg too. So, um, yeah, I don't like to chance it. So, and even if it's separated, if it starts molding, 
I mean, why leave it in there? Just kick it out of there. You know what I mean? If it's, I mean, if it's definitely gone, there are some that you can save, you know, you can try to wipe off and there's all kinds of tricks, but, um, if it's definitely gone, I mean, you'll, you'll start noticing it'll get funky. It'll just keep growing mold. You're not going to, you know, if it's at day 10 and you've got 50 days left, I mean, you're not going to beat it. It's, it's going to be, it's probably going to go bad. Might as well get it out of there. Don't risk it. Um, and that's kind of what happened to me when I moved to Memphis in California with the humidity being low. I don't know if it was humidity issue. I had a lot of different things that I, I changed this year and so far, fingers crossed I'm successful, but, um, when I moved to Memphis, I would have within the first week, about two thirds of my clutch would just go totally bad. And they all candled oh. decently well. And it yeah, was that's... such a bummer. <laughs> such a bummer. Yeah, that is a bummer. I mean, you, but you said it was why you were moving. So, well, it's, it was the, since I moved. So I moved oh, to, since you moved. yeah, uh, somewhere where it was really dry to somewhere where it was really humid. Like I said, I don't gotcha. know if that was the case, but even, you know, the, the past couple years, that I've been pairing things together. I'm, I have not been doing well. Um, knock on wood, I've changed some things. Kara's, Kara Norris has helped me change how I'm doing some stuff. Um, and I can get into that too. But uh, previously, I had them in small six quarts. And okay. I used perlite. And I put um, the uh, the light diffuser screen yeah, on top of it. So I would do that. Um, and that way, you know, if I needed to add water, it wouldn't touch the eggs type of thing. And it wouldn't, the eggs wouldn't get overly wet. Um, however, within the first week, those went bad. So I'm like, great. And I was using, um, a two by two incubator at the time as well. So what we kind of thought is that perhaps the incubator was too small. And if there was a slight change in temperature, it wasn't able to, um, account for that. And so the eggs itself also had high swings in temperatures. And so I did larger egg boxes. I did uh, really deep, like three to four inches of vermiculite. And now they're on the vermiculite directly. I measured one-to-one vermiculite to water. So if it was a okay. thousand grams of vermiculite, a thousand grams of water. And that has so far worked out well. Oh, really? Um, yeah. And, uh, and yeah, like the, the tub boxes themselves, they're 19 quarts and they're tall. So the vermiculite comes about halfway up as well. And then I upgraded my incubator as well to like one of the, the Coke dispenser machine type things that gotcha. has been fitted with uh, heat tape and whatnot. And then just keep yeah, that you, at 87 degrees and go for it. So yeah, you go a whole different egg box route than I do. <laughs> okay. What do you do? <laughs> So I, I don't know the exact, I love these boxes. They still sell them. It's a, it's a Sterilite tub. I think they, I would say they're like 16 or 18 quart, but they're snap lids. They have like these snaps on the end. So that like locks them down. That is what I have. Um, and like a foam inner circle that seals them. No, no, there's no sealing. Oh, okay. It doesn't seal them, but it's, it, it snaps and it's pretty airtight. Um, and the, the bottom is real smooth. There's no like edge. There's like not a lot of edges. I don't know what it is. I think they still do sell them. Um, but I fill that up with, I used to be real meticulous. I used to weigh everything <laughs> I used, and I use vermiculite. I go straight vermiculite, eggs in the vermiculite. That's how I do it. I never use the late diffuser. I, I have no experience with perlite. So perlite felt heavy to me. I, I tried one time and a buddy, I incubated a buddy's retix eggs and he had perlite and it just seemed heavy to me and it, I couldn't judge it. So I like vermiculite so much better. That's it's never it's an old school thing, and it, it's not broke, so I don't fix it. I keep it that way. Sure. But um, I fill the tubs up with I don't know what the weight of the things there anymore. But I used to do 
So whatever the vermiculite was, so say I used a uh, thousand grams, I would do 500 grams of water. So I do the opposite. Okay. I would do half. But so now I just, I fill it up almost the full length of the tub. I leave a decent amount of room. I guess uh, I fill it up a good amount. It's a pretty deep layer of vermiculite. Uh, I, I just have this cup I've always used. It's like a good luck cup. It's a 76ers cup from way back in the day. It's got Iverson on it. I had it from a game. It's like a thing. I, I'm not superstitious, but I've always used it. So I still have it. It's like, it's a white, the, the edges are white, but they're like yellow now. There's just nothing you can do about it. So, but I know a point to fill it to. It's almost like three quarters of the way up and that's the perfect amount of water. And I could, I touch it. I go by feel the way it clumps and then mix it real good with the water and all that stuff. So I, I would still say it's half, half uh, water by the weight of vermiculite. Um, I put a little thin layer, dry, a dry layer on top. And then I just, I push the eggs in a little bit, you know, like, a, a, I guess a quarter inch. I don't bury them. I just put them in a little bit. And that's, I've done all short tail bloods and short tail eggs. I did chondro eggs that way. I think chondro breeders were ready to kill me because they seem to do like water and all this crazy stuff. And I'm like, I'm going eggs right in the vermiculite and they hatched. I do. I did retics that way. I did ball pythons that way. So I just like it that way. It works out. And, uh, I, I have a very old, but it still works very good. Um, habitat systems incubator, which is very expensive and it's a big one. Um, I do, uh, I do 87 degrees now on that. And, um, I also have an animal places incubator, which I did use and it worked great, but it's kind of my quarantine, uh, thing. So I put, mm-hmm. I put that in my, I put that in a spare bedroom and the bedroom's not going to have heat and I use tubs. So that's kind of where animals go to quarantine for a couple months now. So if I ever needed it, I, I could use it, but, um, same thing that though. I would go 87 and it never failed me. So, and that's a pretty big one too. That's like both are over six feet tall, so they can get a lot of clutches in there. Yeah. I think mine will do nine clutches if they're average. Yeah. My average is like 15 ish. Normally it's 12 to 15 eggs for me. Um, with Sumatrans giving me a heck of a lot more because they're smaller eggs gotcha. in general. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I'm going with. And like I said, I mean, there are more than one way to skin a cat so if you know the diffuser light works with you and if the smaller tubs work for you go for it um but i also agree that vermiculite is the way to go and the reason i've been weighing it too is because i think i possibly oversaturated the perlite before which could have potentially caused part of the issue that i had and i didn't realize like when when you know you said by feeling it you know Well, me measuring it out, it seemed so much more dry than I actually thought, like how I perceived it should have been. It would be. Yeah. 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 So I I err on the side. I err on the side of drier though. Like forever, even when I would weigh it, I would feel it and I I didn't have a feel for it. But after all these years, I kind of have a feel for it. I should also say, I don't put any holes in my box. So I... I'm usually home when incub- like I'm not on a long vacation when incubation happens. So for me, every every other day, every two days, I go in on my boxes and I have to wipe the top. They'll start sweating, um, mm-hmm. and I rotate them. I turn them around. So like that's what I do every two days. There is a uh, I think Lon Lon Dexler had a good system where he just poked a hole in the box and covered it with tape because in the beginning they don't produce as much heat. So you're usually good. And then once they start really towards the end, they, I have to wipe them even more like every day you take that thing off and it, and it kind of controls the the sweat of the box a little bit more that, you know, they do at the top. 
But I, it's just this thing I have where I just keep on doing it that way. And the whole thing would probably work well, but I, like I said, it's, I've been doing well with it so far. So I kind of just go off of uh, how I've been doing it. And it's now the thing my daughter likes to do. She likes to go check the eggs. We wipe the (laughs) egg boxes. We rotate them. She sees if they're dimpling for me. So she's very into the incubation. She knows what to look for now. (laughs) She's, she's an, she's definitely an animal person and she's getting very into it. Watching, uh, watching YouTube coming home with terms I didn't teach her from reptiles (laughs) shocking me. So it's pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I forgot where my, oh, I do put holes in the lids of mine and I also cover them with tape and I have each egg box has its, um, oh gosh, what is the brand called? It's, uh, one of those like digital thermometers and I can't, yeah, yeah, I know know you're packing right or something like that. You know, the Home Depot brand. I have, um, the, the little govies is what I have and I just, I, I think that you can put something like directly into the substrate of the egg box. I just have it on like they're Velcroed on the outside of the, or like the, I don't know, the inside ledge. I don't know. The inside. Yeah, of the I, know, I, I know what you mean. I used to put, I used to put them ones from Home Depot or Lowe's. They, I used both and they would do humidity too. And there were points where I would be nervous about humidity and I'd put them in there and um, it worked really well, but I found it would really kill the life of the, uh, digital thermometer i guess with the humidity it just would they would just fade out and then the numbers would go wacky if you didn't do that they would last years but if you put them in an egg yeah. box they would last like two seasons <laughs> i don't care about the price i mean if, if nine dollars they were like nine bucks at the time get you a clutch of eggs and you don't feel like you're unsafe feeling and you you need that spend nine dollars on every clutch i mean it should be worth it in the end yeah yeah, hundred percent. And the Govi ones I have, I think were maybe fifteen to twenty-five. I can't remember. And then they just hook up to my phone, now. and it like tracks like uh, minute by minute. Yeah. I can track the humidity. Oh uh, yeah, I've never had that. That's that's tech. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not bad. It's pretty cool. Uh, I have no, that. With it, my, it is. It's very nice. That sounds. I have it with good. my my I'm, snake room too. And yeah, I can set I can, alarms on it where it'll tell. I can set alarms for thresholds of humidity or temperature and it, my phone will give me an alert if it goes below that threshold. So that's yeah, kind of cool. Too. That is nice. I have that for my snake room. I have a Honeywell thermostat, so I can set it from my phone. I can check the temperature from my phone. I can change it from my phone, but as far as my incubator, yeah, I'm kind of just playing it, <laughs> playing it when I come home and seeing stuff. So it is, it is a little, it can be scary. And um, yeah, that's actually that's something I might want to invest into. So I might have to check that out. Yeah. It's not too bad. Yeah. Um, and I, I even, I feel like a a terrible uh, snake breeder for this, but I had the electricity go out and I didn't realize that the fan of my incubator didn't kick back on with the thermostat itself. Like there's power to it, but it didn't actually turn on. So I had some hot spots and some cool spots, but, um, and everything actually went really cool for me. And we're talking like 80 degrees for a good couple days because I wasn't good about checking it which is where my terrible breeder yeah. comment came from. Yeah, uh, but not, they're, they're doing fine. Terrible. Yeah, I would, they're doing mistakes fine. happen. We, I've made, I can't think off the top of my head. I've definitely made mistakes that I felt stupid about. And I mean, you can always go to Owen. He didn't even plug his incubator in and he still hatched snakes. <laughs> Literally. I was about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He just was like, Oh, they're incubating fine. Wait, it's not even on. But I mean, that's also a good experiment because uh, I would yeah. want to experiment that way. But by accident, it's like, Oh, they still hatched, yep. which I wonder, you know, uh, we didn't talk about that, but I don't know if we were going to get into it. I think like, 
you know, there are people that just go ambient temperature straight across the board for, for short tails. And it's usually 80 degrees is like their, their thing. Yep. I wonder if they could just hatch at 80 degrees too. I'm, I'm almost sure they probably could. It would be risky, but I wouldn't want to try it. But it just feels like 80 is a good key point for keeping them and all the way across the board. I wonder if you could just hatch snake eggs at 80 degrees if I, for if short I get, tails and bloods. Right. If I, if I get a Sumatran clutch that is excessively large, maybe I'll pull a little <laughs> side group <laughs> yeah, and try it and see what happens. Yeah. It'll probably just take a really long time. If, if Probably. You know. Yeah. That's what I mean. I, I, that's like I said, I, I, I don't, I, I would imagine, I think people have incubated from 83 to 91 and everything's hatched just different yep. time frames. Oh, so uh, we didn't get an incubation time. So I'll wait, I'll wait for that. No, go ahead. Oh, well, what we were talking about before when I got into it, the, uh, the, the temperatures of incubation. So I like 87 now, and I've done everything from – I think I did 85 before, but I think I bumped it to 86 quickly, um, all the way to 90. And when I used to do 89, 90, yes, the snake eggs would hatch at day 54 sometimes, day 56. They almost never went 60. But a lot of times you find them with uh, – they look, you know, they just got the the big yolk. Sometimes they didn't stay that way, but they just they just seem to come out early. I'd get more narrow head stuff. They just seemed a little mm-hmm. bit weaker. Um, and you would get not just the the appearance when the babies come out of the big yolk and then it kind of straightens out. You would actually get the hard yolk bellies where at one point the that yolk inside just turns into like a hard mass. And if you don't get it out, they die. And you got to like milk it out of them kind of like palpated out of them. And if you don't palpate, you can rip them or kill them from palpating out of them if it gets hard or large enough. So I, I don't see that all the time, but when I used to incubate at higher temperatures, I would see that so much more than, I don't think I've had a hard yolk belly since I started incubating at 86, 87 degrees. And I have noticed just with when people post pictures of their baby and no one in particular, but sometimes you see where it's very thin at the neck and then, you know, where their yolk would be absorbed, it seems to be a lot bigger and heavier right there. That big mass. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And not that it was hard necessarily. It just seems like they just seem disproportioned in a way. Yeah. And sometimes they straighten out. And sometimes that happens. That can happen at any temperature. It could be something that has to do with the clutch or the braiding possibly. It's not, I don't, I'm not saying I don't have proof or done any research to know if it has to do with high temperatures. In my experience, that's what I found out. And really it's not from ball pythons or anything or, or, or retics or anything like that, that I've normally hatched. It's just Borneos and bloods. And um, yeah, sometimes that big mass is fine. It, the yolk absorbs and it's fine, but sometimes you get them hard belly ones. And, and then, you know, if you don't know what they are, you wait too long, you'll go and, you know, you'll pop open a tub and it'll be a, snake curled up to the point of that hard mass and you just have a dead snake with a big hard belly that the rest of the body's real thin. It's like something just totally goes wrong and it's a blockage. But I also learned from a video, I think it was a pro exotic video. I know when I was in my younger days, I didn't think there was anything you could do about that. And I think I had a ball Python clutch where like it was six of them and three were like that. And, um, the pro exotic video taught you that you can palpate it, but they showed you the mistake of you could rip the belly from where the umbilical cord is and all. And I was successful with milking them all. And it is such a nasty looking pink red mess. And it's, uh, but they all, they all, I, they all passed it with me helping them. And, uh, afterwards they all did fine. And I've, I've had Borneos and Reds do the same thing. And I've, uh, I was able to help them and save them. And, And unfortunately there was a red blood that was like really tiny, 
that I did that too. And yeah, it tore up, it tore through the middle and I had to, I had to put it down. It, was, it wouldn't have made it. It was all ripped yeah. up, and, but it wouldn't have made it either way. So I had to, I had to take a shot. Sure. You might as well try. Yeah. 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 Well, knock on wood, I haven't had that happen yet, but if I do, I'll be calling you Yeah, <laughs> to I, figure I, out I, how, to, how to get through. <laughs> It's yeah, it's uh, it just takes a lot of carefulness. It's it's weird to judge it too. I, I know there was a year I had it happen to that the year after I had it happen to the ball pythons, and I think I had it happen to a few blood python blood pythons. I started second guessing myself, like there would be a point where I'm touching them and I'm like, is that normal or is it not? And I was getting real scared, and I definitely didn't want to start trying to palpate their yolk out of them if it was good yolk, you know what I mean? So yeah, I waited, and luckily there was nothing wrong with them, but it, it can get in your head to where you're like. Is that a hard mass or not? I want to catch it before it gets solid. Because I think if you catch it at a certain point, that's easier than if it gets like, and they get really, I know when they're dead from that, they're, they're very hard. So I don't know if there's a, there's like a time frame. I mean, obviously there's a time frame because if you wait too long, they die. But if there's a time frame of where it gets hard, rigid, or it's like kind of soft and it's easier to get out. Interesting that maybe other people touch on that or, or know more about that. Yeah, if, if you guys are listening and have experience with that, please comment or email me um, yeah. and then give me more information so we can talk about that more. Um, and we didn't really – we kind of touched on it a little bit, but uh, do your eggs hatch within the 60-day range at 87 degrees? Um, yeah, I would say between 59 days and like 64, usually more on the 64-day 64 degree, uh, 64 mark um, now that I'm doing 87 I don't mind waiting the extra time, like I said, they, and I let I let stuff start pipping or slicing up the egg, and then if I do cut an egg, I cut a little triangle of like a flap of a window, and it's only if I see some heads poking out, a whole snake out, or there's a couple with slices in it. If I catch one snake that, I mean, one egg with a slice in it, I don't go in there and start cutting everything up and checking, or if it gets really late, um, I think if it surpasses like, I think what was the last time I had something bad happen? I think it was like day 70. So I started doing taking a couple eggs and cutting the little triangle, not a full, not like cutting a triangle out, just like two slits. So you can peek in and out so the egg can close yep. just to see and make sure, you know, something was it, in there. It gives them around. an out just in case maybe they developed without an egg tooth or something and they were stuck. Yeah. Or, yeah. That's, that's um, I used to do the, I used to do the egg cutting thing where, you know, it would be a certain amount of time. I would be day 60. I was incubating at like 88 or 89. I would cut a circle or I'd cut a, a little window, like more than a window, like not a flap, but cut it open. But I would never dig my finger. And we all know who does that. <laughs> I don't mention names, but I would never dig my finger in and all that stuff. But I mean, nowadays, like I said, I like to see the heads pop out. I'd rather them come out naturally. I think it's just yeah. so much better because I know when I did cut the eggs open, if they, there could be something that came out prematurely. And I think there was, because they would just seem weaker than the rest. They would move around funny for a couple of days. And I mean, they would kick on, but it's just not, it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't worth the risk of like, you know, waiting a couple more days. I mean, like I said, I know it's out of excitement. Usually when people do that. And I, I hope that the, the racing days are over of, of like, I have to be, I have to cut them open because I need to be the, the first to show this one. But yeah, I'm sure which is not. silly. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is silly. I mean, but like I said, I don't think I cut them open to race. I cut them open because I'm like a kid at Christmas and I want to ruin my Christmas by finding my presents. Like that's kinda, <laughs> right. You get so excited. Kinda, yeah. And I realize I'm like, I'm an adult and I can't wait two to four more days and I'm, I'm risking right. snake eggs. So yeah, yeah I stopped that probably, I would say five, 
six years ago. I just stopped doing that. Yeah, I've noticed when they do like the first little slit, and even when their heads are out, it still takes, you know, a day or two, sometimes even three for all of them to fully get it out. It drives you nuts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it drives you nuts, but it's also <laughs> fun in a way, you know, like I said. Like, what do you look like in there? Come out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really. Yeah. Well, that's about as far as I want to go for this episode. Um, so thank you very much, Matt. I think next episode, which will be next month, I want to talk about starting the babies and then how to pick holdbacks or just how to pick, you know, if you want to buy a snake, like what are you looking for for the outcome? We know bloods and short tails can change drastically over the first three to four years of their life. So we're going to talk about how to pick one to, to get the look at maturity that you're looking for. So that'll be next month. So keep an eye out for them. Thank you again, Matt. I appreciate your time and all of your knowledge. Thank you for having me, April. This was awesome. I'm glad you wanted me on here. Absolutely. All right, guys, and that's it. And we will catch you all later. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Please feel free to give me a follow on Facebook and Instagram at Bloods by Design. Tag me in your blood python photos at Bloods by Design, hashtag strictly shorties, so I can share all the awesome animals you listeners have. And if you have any questions, people you want to hear from, or topics to discuss, you can email those to bloodsbydesign at gmail.com. And of course, this podcast is supported by the NPR Network. If you want to get a hold of any of the guys at the NPR Network, you can email them at info at MoreliaPythonRadio.com. You can follow them on all the socials and, of course, subscribe to the NPR Network YouTube channel. They have a Patreon where you can support all the NPR podcasts, just like this one, as well as merch. And all of that can be found on their website, MoreliaPythonRadio.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you next month for more Strictly Shorties.